two swords on the field that day. Only two swords on the field. We're going to look at those two swords now. Let's look at the first sword, the sword in the hand of the sun, which is faith. And this is real faith, I got to tell you. Uh, in chapter 13, we have the scene set. There were raiders all over this land of Israel, the Philistines. And, you know, if um, you look at the actual place names, because they give you a lot of details in, in this passage. A lot of details are given to us. Um, and you can tell where this actually happened. And, and where this is going on, the action is in the central Benjamin Plateau with the northern tribes to the north, and the tribe of Judah to the south, this is about the heart of Israel. This is where the Philistines had come and taken over. So they weren't on the coast anymore. They'd gone through the Shephelah, and they've gone up into the hill country. They're in the tribe of Benjamin. They're all over. So it's a really um, bad time. And Jonathan's moving freely here among them. Um, and as I say, when they, when they give all these details, we can actually tell where this happened. And I've been there, this, these rocky crags that they describe, uh, which they actually give names, bozes, which means uh, maybe slippery. We don't really know what it means, but could be slippery because it's a real cliff. It's a real rocky outcrop. It's hard to, you know, to, when it says climb up hand over foot, that Jonathan was climbing up hand over foot, he really was climbing hand over foot. Um, in fact, I have, an, I have a fantasy at one day, you know, I might lead a group there, uh, maybe, maybe of young people, and climb up that cliff so you can feel what it was that Jonathan actually had to do because it's, it's there. The topography hasn't changed in 3,000 years. You could actually climb up this cliff and, and feel what it was like. It's almost superhuman because he gets to the top of this, this rocky out, outcrop and he has to fight a battle when he gets to the top, 20 to 1, and he wins. So what is this, friends? This is faith. The only way this could have been done is by faith. And if faith is so effective that the Philistines are in a panic because this outcrop, it's, if um, you kind of look from it, you can see from miles around so you say, well, why would the Philistines be in a panic if just their garrison, you know, this outpost was taken? It's because this was, this was a perfect place to see what the enemy was doing. So if, uh, the only way that you could, that you could, that this garrison would fall is if you had a huge army of Israelites come on and just overcome it. Because from where you're standing, you would have plenty of time to run back to Michmash to the north and bring back reinforcements from the Philistines. There's just no way this would fall. And so all of a sudden it was fallen. They thought it must be a huge army. And so they panic. They start running back, running away. They leave their armaments. Israelites follow them. They're picking up the armaments. So there, in one day, Israel becomes an army, becomes armed, because they're picking up the, the Philistine armaments. So it's a tremendous effect that this man's faith had, this one faithful son. And then... After, you know, his, his uh, father goes through his machinations and he's going to be executed, what does he do? His son steps forward and says, okay, here I am, ready to die. How many of your teenagers have ever said that to you? Okay, is there a need for death? Here, here I am, ready to die. Okay. This is all faith. This is nothing but faith here. 
nothing but faith in this one sword, this faithful son. Now, if you look at the other sword on the field, the sword in the hand of Saul, we see faith, faithlessness. Saul does not have faith. He is uh, in retreat here, and if you look at the geography, which you can tell on a map, he's southern. He's, he's south from where Jonathan is engaging with these troops. And he's hiding in these caves, the, the pomegranate cave, it says. So Saul is out of the picture. Here's the king who doesn't have faith. And because of his faithlessness, he's not only hiding, he inflicts hardship on the, on the people. He's really expecting too much of them. He's really hurting the people. You can see in verse 24, they're hard-pressed. Author tells us, verse 28, their people are faint. And in case you missed it, again, verse 31, the people are faint. So when Jonathan says what he says in verse 29, my father is troubling the land, he's really being honest here about what's really going on. My father is trouble, troubles the land. And the faithlessness reaches its, its ep epic uh, proportions. In verse 39, when, Paul, when Saul excuse me, utters this, this oath, verse 39, it seems like a rash oath when he says, whoever, whoever has disobeyed me is going to die, even if it's my son, Jonathan. And you hear that and you think, oh man, like he's, he's exaggerating here. He's making one of these rash oaths like those judges of old, of old time, when they would make these foolish oaths. And, it, and Saul seems to be doing this here. He's saying, even if it's my son. Well, then, turns out it is his son. And in verse 44, we find out he's serious. He's, he's ready to have his own son executed rather than do the one thing that's required of him here in, this, in his leadership, and that is admit he was wrong. So what do we have here? We have a Vladimir Putin here who's ready to destroy his own house rather than retreat, rather than admit it's a bad call, it's a wrong call. So this is damaging. And you think, well, this is causing a rift probably between the father and son. Like this is where it starts, this rift. But actually, like in a lot of these situations, this isn't the, be this isn't the beginning of the story. This is the end of the story. This is a revelation of a rift that had been there and growing. We know it's growing there, right? Because look at chapter 14, verse 1. When, when Jonathan goes on his exploits, his exploits of faith, why doesn't he tell his father? Why doesn't he tell his father? Because the rift is already there. He knows he's, he's, he's dealing with a dad <clears throat> who's not recognizing faith when it's right in front of him. So the damage done here is not only to the people of Israel in this failure. It's a father losing his son. That's what's going on in this story. It's, it's, it's these two swords that are being highlighted for us. It's a story of a battle, yes, but also, more importantly, this engagement of how father is losing his son. And so there are lessons for us, parental lessons for us that we should look at that arise from this story. Let me give you three lessons that come forth from this story. Like, what do we see here? How do fathers lose their sons? Okay, three ways that fathers lose their sons. Learning here from, from Saul's failure. Number one, number one way, fathers lose their sons. 
insisting on principles that are not good for the child's good. Insistence on principle that's not for the child's good. Okay? So we have here this kind of other, other trap of parenting, right? And it's, a, it's, in, it's, a, it's in contrast to Eli. It's, it's actually no coincidence that Eli is mentioned here. You notice in verse 3, Eli comes up, and it's like, oh, and his sons are involved here. Why? Because we're having a contrast between Eli's parenting error and Saul's parenting error. And you remember what Eli's parenting error was. He was too lenient, right? His discipline, his, his discipline of his sons didn't have any teeth to it. So the sons kind of came to understand. He said, don't make me count to three. It really meant, well, don't make me count to four. And when he meant, don't make me count to four, he really meant, don't make me count to five. <laughs> like there, wasn't, there, wasn't a, there weren't any boundaries in Eli's household that had pain attached to them. Or as, as Hebrews 12 tells us in the New Testament, discipline is supposed to be painful. <laughs> Hebrews 12, discipline is supposed to be painful. So that was Eli's error. No, no teeth to his discipline. But in this, this is almost like the opposite error of what we see in Saul, right? Saul is, is insisting on things that aren't really good for his children. He's overbearing. He's dictatorial here. And you can almost hear what Saul would say, right? When his, when his advisors came to him, which they probably did, and said, you know, Saul, this is too much. Not letting the people eat until, you know, they've chased all the enemies down, they've avenged your enemies. That's kind of too much. People are faint. They're faint. You're going overboard here. You can almost hear Saul say it. It's the principle of the thing, right? It's the principle of the thing. I've, I'm king and I said it. So if I go back on my word, you know, they won't respect me, right? Can we hear that in his, in his words? Can we hear that in Saul's attitude? It's the principle of the thing. And so he insists on this, and he's expecting too much of the people. Now, I'm saying this in a way that makes it sound simple. But when you're in the midst of parenting, sometimes it's hard to know. Sometimes you're like, am I insisting on principles that are not good? Am I doing too much? Or am I being too lenient? I know that's your struggle. Especially you young parents now, you're, tr you're trying to figure out, how am I going to raise this child? What, is, what am I supposed to be disciplining for? What's important to be uh, making rules about in my household? Well, listen, here's the thing. You're looking for what the child needs to develop. And this is how you decide. And you can do this. You know, you sit down with your spouse and you say, what age are we at right now? What is it that we want to, you know, just a short list of a few things, three or four things that we're concentrating on at this period of their lives. That's how you do it. And you can do this. You can do this. God specifically gave you as these kids' parents because he, he knew you could come up with these lists. So, for example, okay, age two to three, what are the things that they need, ages two to three? What are they learning? This, you make your short list. Age two to three, what do they need? Well, one, they need to learn that no means no, spoken softly every time. And they need to know that no means no the first time, right? 
They also need to know to be still with clothing and medicine. They need to allow mommy to help. And they need to go to sleep. Roughly, you know, what trainers can do with sea otters. That's all. It's simple. That's what you're concentrating on. You're not overwhelming them with rules. Ages four to five, what do they need? They need to learn respectful address of adults. They need to learn the difference between truth and falsehood. Really surprised you as a parent, didn't, that you had to teach that, right? (laughs) And they need to recognize private property. Ages four or five. Ages six to seven, what do they need? They need to learn perseverance. They need to learn stewardship, taking care of things. They need to learn to resolve conflict biblically. A short list. You pick them. Ages 8 to 10, what are they dealing with? They're, They're learning to deal with unfulfilled desires. They're learning to handle failure. They're learning to serve. They need to learn to guard their eyes. These lists, as I say, you pick them. And you can. I'll tell you what should not be on those lists. Making sure that you don't eat until your dad's enemies are vanquished. (laughs) That should not be on those lists, okay? Not a good disciplinary principle. But that's what Saul was doing, right? What should not be on this list is making sure dad looks good. That's what he was doing. That's the first way that you lose or as Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 6 says, Colossians 3 in the New Testament, fathers do not provoke your children. Fathers do not provoke your children. You know, an incredible command that comes out in the Roman con- uh, cultural context of patria potestas, where in the Roman ha- household, the dad was God. Paul says, no, no, fathers actually do not provoke your children. Do not insist on principles that are not for the child's good. That's way number one, way number one. Way number two, fathers lose their children. Taking disobedience as a personal affront. Taking the disobedience of your child as a personal affront. Now, this is hard. You see what, Paul, what Saul is doing in verse 29. He's taking the, any, any disobedience as a personal affront to, to himself. And that's how he lost his son's respect. That's why he brings Jonathan to, to the point of being able to say, my father is troubling the land. He's still going to obey him, but in his heart, something has changed in his view of his father. And it's because, you know, he's slighted. Saul is slighted, and it's in public, you know. I hate looking bad. I really do. And so it's tough If my child doesn't act well, it reflects badly on me, especially in public. And that can shift my motivation for discipline. And there's this subtle shift that happens in us as parents, does it not? And so we start to care more about whether we're being obeyed than whether or not the child is obeying. It's a subtle difference, right? We're not... We're no longer concentrating on whether the child is obeying, do what the child needs to do, but we're, we're concentrating on whether we have been obeyed. 
And so we tend to then discipline in anger. And it's, again, it's a hard, it's hard in the midst of parenting because when a child does disobey, you know, it's, it's a blow to the right relationship that should be there with us. But when we're disciplining for the right reason, anger is more rare. I wouldn't say that anger is not ever there, but anger is more rare for us. But this is the second way. So number one, insisting on principles that, that are not for the child's good. Number two, taking disobedience as a personal affront. Number three, really this is the biggest one, not being able to admit when we're wrong. And that is what that is what Saul needed to do in this leadership situation. That is what he just couldn't do. And you can look at him and say that. Man, he should have said at a certain point, I made the wrong call. This was wrong. But he can't. And it's tough because, you know, the more, the more responsibility you have, the more difficult that becomes. The more is on the line to say, yes, I was wrong. But that is what Saul couldn't do. And, you know, I can give you many examples. I actually don't have to go back that far <laughs> to, to give you an example of this struggle in my life. You know, I remember um, my wife and son were driving to Oxford uh, not too long ago, and she calls me on the phone, and she's like, I don't think the car is, is working right. And I was in the middle of something. I didn't really want to be bothered. And she was like, the dial is saying that it's overheating. And I'm like, you know, those, those dials, you don't have to pay attention on the old cars, you know. He's just looking the overflow bin, and if there's cool in the overflow bin, it's going to be okay. And she's like, oh, I don't know where the overflow bin is. And I'm like, you know, it's just there in the front. And she's like, there's, there's air, there's leaking air from the tire. And I'm like, yeah, that tire has a slow leak, but, you know, don't worry about it. Just go, just go. So long, long story short, the car ended up in the shop, you know, and when they, they got in the shop, you know, they, it was completely empty of any coolant in the car. I had no coolant whatsoever. And, uh, you know, so I, I remember at night, at, that night I was at dinner, and I said, you know, circumstances have come to light. <laughs> Certain factors have been unclouded. <laughs> Certain things we've been made aware of that um, I should say that I was, I was, I was wrong. <laughs> after, after enough, you know, facial calisthenics, I got the word out. So hard. I was wrong. This is so key, Friends. You know, I was part of a, a discipling group, a group of guys, who, uh, and we were, we were going along together, and we had, all had adult children. And we decided as a group we were going to write a letter to one of our children and explain how we feel like we had failed as parents, as dads. And so we each did this, and uh, I did this too. We wrote, we wrote a letter to one of our adult children. We said, look, just... I just want you to know, this is how I think that I've failed as a parent. And I just want to ask your forgiveness. But, you know. And children, you know, adult children, if they haven't had kids yet, they don't really know 
what, what this is about. But he, my son, I wrote this too. He took it seriously. He came back to me. This is what he said. I'll never forget it. He said, I can see what you're saying. I can see ways that you failed as a parent. The ways that you failed have been more than compensated by the times you admitted that you were wrong. I remember at that moment, I was feeling a great relief at all the times he didn't remember, the times when I didn't admit that I was wrong, the time when I was Saul at Gibeah, when I was Saul on the battlefield. But you know, it doesn't take much, actually. Children can be very forgiving if they perceive in you this spirit that is the opposite spirit of Saul, who could not say it, that he was wrong and did such great damage. So you know, it's difficult to talk about these things. I know it is hard to talk about things because we think about these things as parents and we're filled with regret. And we fall into these pitfalls in these ways. But it's especially important for us to look at the faith, the faithful son and the the words, even in this passage, right? Look at verse 6. You hear what Jonathan says there? It's important for you to hear that as a parent. Nothing can hinder the Lord, saving by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord, saving by many or by few. In this case, he did save not only by few, but by one. One faithful son he saved. And you see what's happening here. God in Jonathan was giving a picture to Israel and the world of the salvation to come. The salvation that would come through the one faithful son who is none other than Jesus Christ. Because Jesus 